Hey, let's dig in. Um, we could get into the Word today. I've got a section I'd love to share with you and that we'll read through together. We're going to be in Psalms. Um, they're in the Old Testament. The Psalms, as they're recorded, as we have them here, you know, settled into to our Old Testament. The Psalms are the worship handbook, if you would, for Israel. Um, I see them even as the hymnal for God worshipers, because we have such a range of history recording God's faithfulness. We have um, the, the presence as well of emotion and human experience and how you process and deal with things that are exciting and uplifting and how you deal with things that are heavy and burdensome. And when we find that in the Psalms, we find that it, it's an element of worship. Man is made to worship. It's a part of whether you want to call it our DNA or whatever, however you want to define it. It's built within us. God created man in his image and likeness, and he created us with the capacity to understand uh, superiority, divinity, deity, God himself. And then he, he put within us this desire to have that relationship, which is what worship is. You know, he's created many creatures different ways, agreed? Because he has, maybe you have heard of this thing called a Labrador Retriever. And so it's not about where it's from. It didn't actually come from Labrador, but it has this distinction that's been attached to it. It's called a Retriever. And so when you throw a ball or a pine cone or whatever, it just automatically comes back, slobber included. It just shows up time and time again. And you know, everybody has a retriever, you know what I'm talking about. Now, that's a distinctive. It's wired within that dog, so to speak. There's no such thing as a chihuahua retriever, right? They just don't. Um, there's herding dogs. You guys have you know, been around here. You know what a herding dog does. It nips at you. It kind of brings you around because it's wired distinctly. As his create, creatures created in his image and his likeness, the apple of his eye, he's embedded within us the desire to worship. Now, knowing that man is made to worship helps us understand a few things. But let's make sure we get the core, uh, the simplicity of what worship is. Worship is to revere or to elevate, uh, lift a person or the object of preference, whatever you choose to worship, you, you raise it up above the norm, uh, other relationships. Um, it speaks also of to lower oneself. As you raise one up, you lower yourself in re re recognizing that this, what you choose to give your attention to is, is greater than you in a sense. So with that, I want to say that principle that we worship it's not the outward exclusively, as we're going to see from our text today. It's actually the inner man, the inner working. The position of the physical body represents the priority of the heart when we're kneeling in worship, when we're, when we're you know, worshiping him. And so for Christians, for us, our relationship with Jesus Christ has opened a door, and it's relationally different. We're born again. We elevate God and lower ourselves, not in you know, a form of you know, just kind of beating ourselves up, but just recognizing he's greater. Man is made to worship. We worship the things of this temporal world, or we worship our creator, the one true God. And so today what I want to look at is the practice of worship from Psalm 95. 
And as we look to his word, we don't take it lightly. We don't approach it with a commonality in the sense of it's common. We all seem to have a copy of it, but with reverence. So would you pray with me? God, as we would approach your word today, we do it with great um, awareness that you are God and we are not, that you are creator and you formed and shaped and made the universe and you've made us and you've given us life. You've placed us at this point in history, at this place or spot on the planet and in this community. You place us, Lord, in relationships. You've blessed us with family and friends. And, you know, we just thank you, God. And we would ask, Lord, as we would walk through your word, that you would make it known to us. We come here not with answers, not with complete understanding, but with hungry hearts, that we would understand a greater portion of our purpose, of our design, that we would see what you have designed within life and we would understand even why you've designed certain things certain ways. So I would ask God, you teach us your word. You'd walk us through today, God. Show us what it means to worship. Show, what it, show us what it means to live our lives in a way that honors you and brings glory to your name. And so we just thank you in advance for we know you're faithful. You teach us. And so walk us through, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and start in verse 1. It's 11 verses. I'd like to read through them to catch the, the context, of course. And then we're going to walk through kind of how the flow. And towards the end of our time, we'll look over at some New Testament passages that actually quote this particular psalm. So let's begin there, of course, in verse 1, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The height of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it's a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So as I mentioned, let's go back through and we'll walk through a few th principles within this and, and uh, just see what we can hopefully glean and gain and be encouraged by. Verse one, we have an invitation. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully. We see it continuing in verse two. Let us come before his presence. Who we worship is a choice. Come, let us sing to the Lord. We're told in this text, in this first verse, that he is the rock of our salvation. Shout joyfully to him. See, worship is an expression of a realization. When we realize who he is, then worship is an, an extension of that. Does that make sense? When you don't understand who he is, it's hard to, to venerate or elevate him. 
But as we come into this realization of who he is, then we ought to see there's an invitation. And when he says that he's the rock of our salvation, rock in, in scripture, when it has a not only metaphorical or a type of a similitude style, poetic as well, it just speaks of stability, the rock of salvation. When, you know, this, this rock speaks of, you know, sure and solid, it does not shift or change. And you'll see it frequently, even speaking of Jesus as the rock of our salvation. We even have songs that are built upon that truth, that understanding. It doesn't shift and change. Aren't you glad that we see here, let us shout joyfully to the rock, the certain, sure, stable thing of our foundation, of our salvation, I mean. Aren't you glad? I'm really glad that my salvation is not dependent upon my performance. Because I can start great and finish terrible. And that's not a good thing if it means your salvation is based on your performance. But it's based on who he is as a person and what he's done for us. And here in the Old Testament, in this psalm, we see the declaration of a truth We want to come before him. We want to sing to him because he is the rock of our salvation, the certain and sure thing. We're given an invitation to worship God. We see in both these verses, one and two, let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. See, worship is is a response. It's an expression of a realization. The realization we find, we see descriptive in some detail In verse 3, the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. See, we don't worship one of many gods. We worship the living and true and only God. God himself revealed through scripture, one God in three personages, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one creator God. And it says here that he is the, the... great king above all gods. And that's a little g. So what you think you realize, hopefully, is that people can elevate themselves through their own preference, through their profession, through uh, their, their natural attributes, like an athlete or, some, or a musician. They can elevate themselves to a point of idolatry. And maybe it's the people that are pushing them up and they're jumping up. I don't know. Or you can have religious systems that are elevated like this is the way this is how it works this is this is we're like a god because we live in a world that says you know either there is no god or you can be your own god or you can you know this is the same all roads lead to heaven which we know is not true so we have here this this declaration that this truth being revealed that there is jehovah the lord is god And all other things are underneath him. And so you see, it makes it a lot easier to worship when you realize who he is, correct? If I accept this as truth, and I even want to maybe dig in a little bit to to put my rational or natural physical mind at ease, and I want to say, okay, how do I confirm that he is God? How do I know that there's not other gods and many gods? Well, for one, there is a fact of human history that is not strictly religious or spiritual in the record. The fact of human history is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, conquering death and hell. Now, if I'm going to follow some person who claims to be deity or some system that says this is the way to spirituality, I want to know what they got for me. 
right? I don't want to just follow somebody that's got a good PR team or whatever. I want to know, okay, what's he accomplished? But here we have a fact of history. It's not a pastor's perspective. It's not a Christian's opinion. Those are attached to this fact that Jesus came as a man, God in human form, where we were given the details. You could say, well, that's because it's in the Bible and that's just what you believe the Bible. Okay, I'm tracking with you. I, I get your logic. But where your logic falters is when the facts of history show that Jesus rose from the dead because he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses at once. There's more than 500 people that seen him after being on the cross, after being put in a hole, in a tomb, left for dead, and then rising from the dead and manifested, being seen by not only his followers, you could discount them because they're just his followers, but over 500 eyewitnesses seeing that this one who declares himself to be God conquered death and hell. You got to admit, that's, he's got something going there. He's the only one that can do it. And then when he gives you the details of why he did it, to remove the guilt and the shame that you have because of sin, to take this life that you have that's destined for hell, destined for death, and pour his life into it, you being born again, regenerated because of the work of God, because he is God. Now I'm going, okay, this seems like something that I would want to elevate. Agreed? This is something that, okay, that if, if this happened and the, 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 the things to put my mind at ease are true, the things that have continue to be show to be true, then I don't want to live at just this, this plane. I want to be able, I want to choose to, to worship. And so we see in, in verse 3, he's the great God above all gods. His hands are the, in the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hill are his also. The sea is hid, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. You see what that encompasses in a poetic style, conveying to you and me all that you can imagine, all that you can see above in a physical sense on this planet we live in. And even where you could consider and ponder below, it's all his. He's created all of it. And I think, man, that's the one I would definitely want to, as a human, consider what would I do with this truth? How am I going to respond to this? And as we receive it and realize it, the expression of that realization is an act of worship. It's elevating him and recognizing him. This is all his. So here we have the invitation and the facts to bring about a realization. And now in verse 6, once again, a reminder. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Knowing that he is creator... All things were formed by him. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's full of compassion. He's rich in love. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. We may think the wording here puts the emphasis upon our outward expression because it's identifying you know, what you'd be doing physically, kneel before the Lord. Worship involves elevating God, revering God, and lowering ourselves. But true worship reflects an attitude of submission and servitude. It, it's, a, it's a reflection. See, the attitude of the heart is more important than the elevation of the hands. Can we agree? Because you can elevate your hands in an act of public worship and have the apparent or the assumed expression of devotion to God. 
But it's the attitude of the heart that's more important. Because you can act in, in, in manners in various ways that can be interpreted, but God is the one who knows the heart. And so I, I mention that because I think it's important that we're willing to, to bow down and to surrender. I don't encourage it in like this type of gathering, and I'm not opposed to it. But if, say, someone says, I want to just go bow before the altar. I want to come before the stage. I want to bow before the Lord. But, you know, I, I'm concerned when something that's done publicly is more in the sway and the observation of the people present than perhaps God. So my encouragement is always to start in your prayer closet. When no one is, you're not going to be distracted by the opinion or perception or maybe a point of pride. Start in your prayer closet and bow before him. There's something that is, it's just, it's, it's a humble act to literally bow before the living God, physically. At the same time, you know, um, raising our hands likewise. Do it in such a way that we realize, you know, I'm, I want to make sure this is to him. Let me kneel before the Lord, our maker. Verse 7, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. He is her God. He is their God. But you know what it's saying is your God. You know, I have had people in my life that are, um, they're solid Christians. They love the Lord. And I was kind of captivated. I'm kind of curious about their relationship with God. And they would convey to me certain words about the truths of God. But their God wasn't my God. I still had certain things I pursued. I had certain things that were more important to me. I, I was, you know, living the non-born again life. So I elevated myself. It's not even realizing I was doing it, quite honestly. There's a point where we realize he, he is our God. It's a personal thing. It's directed to the realization that he is my God. I accept what's true, what, uh, the truth about him. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he is God. I don't, I, I, when I started as a Christian, and it's still true today, I started as a Christian, I had more questions than answers. And the more I understood, the more questions I had. So mathematically, Christians, Christianity is silly. Okay, let's start with four questions, go for four months, and end up with 27. And then go for 27 days longer and end up with 39 more questions. And it's like, oh, why is this the point of this? Well, see, that's the beauty of a journey where you're humble and maturing. Because you realize, man, I'm learning so much. I'm gaining so much. I know more about myself. And do you see, when he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture, it conveys poetically, and we understand it because of the... You know, where we live here in the West, we've seen sheep. I don't know if you guys have been up in the hills. There's a pretty big flock of sheep there just as you turn off to go to Pine. They're waiting to go on in, and they're just basically fattening up where they're sitting. But you watch how the shepherd engages with them, or you're familiar with their characteristics and mannerisms, and you start going, wow. It is a beautiful word picture to portray our relationship with God because he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. And if that doesn't cause you to consider things humbly, I don't know what will. Wait a minute. Can I be a, like a sheep with teeth? Can I be? I mean, what, a, what does a sheep think about it? You know, it's not because of their physical abilities and their, their defense mechanisms that they're so identified. It's not because they can sustain themselves and support themselves. And def, you know what I'm saying? I mean, let's think about it. 
Sheep are not knowing, known for being the smartest creatures. Somebody has said, dumb as a sheep. Well, why would you say that? God says we're sheep. Well, you prove my point. They're not, that's, they're not, the, they're not the craftiest creatures. They're dependent upon a group, but they don't get along. You know, they're not known for being the nicest of social animals. They are nitpicky. They're, they're at each other. They're just, you ever seen the one sheep ram another sheep? Just blindside them in the gut just because they can. I don't know if one of them took the grass. I don't know what happened. But they're just not nice. I'm starting to see why God says, <laughs> we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone to his own way. There's some similarities. But here's the thing to realize in this picture. The sheep are dependent upon the shepherd for provision, protection, and direction. They're completely dependent. And that is actually their strength. When he says that, you know, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, it's conveying to you and to me his love. His his hand speaks of his care, his strength, his correction. The imagery is simple. Stay close to the shepherd, and then you learn how beautiful he is. Because there is another, another part, which was brought in in verse, the latter part of verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice. Now, it's going to carry to a historical thing. But before we leave this metaphor, this picture of sheep, let's consider if you will hear his voice. Because Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. So there's something to understand in that illustration. That when a shepherd is not just a hireling or somebody just looking to fleece the flock... But when a shepherd is loving the sheep and providing care, moving them when they don't want to move, but that's time to find new food, uh, bringing them to places of, of comfort and protection and rest, when the shepherd's doing that, he's talking to them, and they learn his voice. And when a shepherd's loving and kind and gracious, they know his voice, and they go with him. And then that's why he says, you know, you know they, they, the, the, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand... Today, if you will hear his voice, because this is kind of a transition in the text. If you will hear. Did you see that? See, there's an emphasis in the word of God throughout the word of God that's often forgotten or maybe inadvertently ignored. And it's about his presence. See, we're being told here that if you will hear his voice, it implies and it brings to you and I an awareness or maybe somehow a realization that the Lord speaks and, and he, he's equipped us, enabled us to hear. So he speaks frequently about the presence, like he's there with you. We know if we look here, even as the first two verses, we're speaking of singing to the Lord, coming to him, come before his presence with thanksgiving. Even in verse 6. You know, let us worship about it. Let's kneel before the Lord. It's his presence that ushers in transformation. Not because he's there, but because we realize he's there. And that realization leads to an expression, an act of worship. That act of worship brings us into a deeper relationship. That act of worship, elevating him, helps us to have a sensitivity to what he says. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. prayer, worship, living for God, all of these are done in the presence of the living God. See, if we can keep that fresh in our minds, 
If you've been a Christian for very long, what I'm talking about, you've dealt with and maybe even struggled with. The certain devotions, we read the Bible in the morning, or we pray at a certain time, or we gather with a group of people to pray, and after a while, it becomes a pattern, and we forget about his presence. And the knowledge of his presence, it literally is what brings in so much of a transformation. Realizing that he is there with us, and he's leading us, all these things are done with his, the knowledge of the living God. If you will hear his voice, what does that mean? See, it's not audible in the sense that it comes from the outside through the ears. I think it's something we want to realize. It's most frequently the inner voice, a prompting, a speaking to your heart. In a sense, a a warning what not to do sometimes. Agreed? Do you ever have a tendency or a tilt or an interest in doing something that deep down, well, actually right up straight up, you just know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. But then you realize, ah, I don't think I should. And then you work through this thing because I think that's an ongoing reality of your life, my life, as we desire to walk with God. There's this interest and curiosity that maybe I can do this. But guess what? When I realize he's with me, it changes things. Let's make sure we understand the principle. Uh, Let's go ahead and go over. We're going to come back. So kind of mark your spot, so to speak, uh, there in Psalm 95. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll actually bring this up on projection as well. Now, we're reading about a specific historical group of people, the, the nation of Israel, as they were brought out of captivity in Egypt and God literally led them in and across this, you know, into this promised land and towards the promised land. Did amazing miracles verifying his presence, confirming that he was leading them. And yet they didn't really respond the way they should. Because that's what the content of what we're looking at there in Psalm 95 is speaking of, you know, they hardened their hearts. Well, here we have in 1 Corinthians 10, that same audience being addressed of their example. It says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, which we looked at, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Verse 5, But with most of them, God was not well pleased For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. It goes on to give us more detail into some of those things that are referenced back here in Psalm 95. Why do I mention this portion? We want to learn from their example. Uh, Early on I had a, a, uh, there's a man in my life, I was probably maybe eight, nine, ten years old, I don't know, Stan Brunskill. Stan Brunskill and I had the same birthday, but probably 40, 50 years apart. And so, anyway, he was a guy who just kind of took me under his wing. He said, you know, Danny, if you do a job right, if you're willing to do the best you can do, people will pay for it. And there's a fascinating story. I'll share that some other day. But what Stan actually taught me and what, what, what he told me, you know, as far as, you know, like, okay, he thought a little axiom about work ethic, but he also said this. It's better to learn from somebody else's mistake than make the same mistake yourself. It's much better, you know. And, and, and I, he cited some examples where physical pain was involved. 
And I'm like, I was easy to agree. Yeah, that's, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather not go through that. Well, that's the principle we have here. The people of Israel, the, the generation I referred to, they put a lot of pain on themselves. And now we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, you can do it that way, or you can learn from their mistake and not do it that way. Let's jump back to Psalm 95 now. Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, verse 8, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when they tested me, though they saw my work. Wow. Is there any application for you and me? Is it possible that we've seen the work of God in our lives? Is it possible that we have seen his work in a way maybe of a, of a, what we know to be a, a relational repair or a financial provision or something? We just, we can't reason it any other way. We know it was the hand of God. We've seen the work of God. But notice they had seen the work of God, yet they put God to the test. Well, God, if you've done this, then therefore you should also do this. And, and they did that. I mean, here they're leaving Egypt. God leads them through. They get to the, to the Red Sea, and God just times it perfectly. They get there, they've got no recourse, no runway, a runaway. They have to deal with this right in front of them. And he opens it up. I imagine, I think accurately, this wall of water on both sides. Phenomenal. And then he leads them through, and they start through. And they're like, you get the, the mist of the salt air and everything. And, and next thing you know, they're picking up the pace. It's like, dude, if this shuts down while we're in here, that's bad. And just moving through. And, and then there's a sense of urgency because the enemy is now approaching off the, the, the bluff, the high side behind them. And as they go through and they get to the other side, and they're all collecting and helping everybody up on the, on the edge, away from the water line, and it just shuts down. It closes in on the enemy. And the enemy doesn't even rise up and flounder because the weight of their equipment, their, their armament, their, their, what their, their, all their heavy gear, they just sank. And you're like, wow. And now they're on the other side and God leads them. He, he goes before them you know, and leads them at night and he leads them by the day and he provides them with food and water, frosted flakes and quail, basically. And, and what do they do? Man, God, you're awesome. You've proven your, I've seen your works. God, if you really loved us, you'd come up with something different for breakfast. We were better off in Egypt at the hands of our oppressors than we are here. That's what they said. They, in Egypt, it was to the point of slavery that the slave drivers, the Egyptians, said, listen, you guys, you, got, you got time to sit around and talk all spiritual stuff? You're going to meet the same quota. You're going to produce the same amount of bricks, but we ain't providing the resources to get it done. You go find your own clay. You go find your own straw, and your quota's the same, or we'll beat you. And that's exactly what was happening. And now over here, seeing the works of God, they're saying, you know what? We were better off back there. Oh my, <laughs> seriously, is that a hardened heart? Now, I'm gonna, I didn't say this first service, so I'm going to delicately say something insensitive. So I'm pretty good at it, not the delicate part. Um, are you in Mountain Home going, I was better off back there? 
I was, man, my last duty station or this last place, I was better off back there. Stop and do inventory, please. Stop and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What if we see the works of God, but we do not learn the ways of God? Because that's what we see in verse 10. 40 years, God says, I've tolerated, I, I, I worked with you. It grieved me to see you turn on me. But yet, 40 years of that generation, and I said, it's a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. You can see the work of God and never learn the way of God. And Jesus said something for you and I to ponder and consider. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's teaching his works. He's showing his, what he's done, and he's showing you and I what that way looks like. And so important that we're willing to say, okay, Lord, teach me. Help me to grasp and understand Here's the simplicity in verse 9 and the truth as we've looked at verse 10. They tested him, though they saw his work. The Israelites wanted to be like the world. That was a common thing with Israel in various seasons we read about through Scripture. They wanted to be like the world. They wanted to fit in. The Israelites thought life would be easier It should be simpler. If the ruler of the universe, the maker of all creation, is leading us, there should be an easier route than this. See, that's true among us as Christians sometimes too. It it should be a little simpler. It may be subconscious. It may not be. But know this. What you believe about God will be tested by what you see in this world. What you believe about God will be tested by what you see in this world. Here's an example. God is love. Do you believe that? I do. I believe God is good. Okay, so that's going to be tested. What do I see in this world? Well, I see a variety, but I do see this grouping, the the pendulum swing way over here, where people are hateful. And there are evil people set on doing damage and death to other people. That's a reality. But how does that work? God is good and God is love. So how come this is allowed? You see what I'm saying? What you believe, what you hold to will be tested by the world around you. Your belief in God is put to the test through real world observations and experiences. We have to stop and go, okay, do I know the work of God? I'm hoping to see the ways and comprehend and grasp and learn the ways of God. See, what you and I go through and what we experience in this world, it's nothing new. It's not like it didn't happen back then. It's not like since, you know, you know Adam and Eve, the only, you know, everybody's had it simple since then. You know, their son kills their other son. Okay, they've seen God create the world and establish family and make truth. And then Cain kills Abel. And they weep, and then we're not told, but you know, mom and dad were deeply distraught from a God who's love, and they see this, this horrible thing happen in their life. And what they believed about God was put to the test to realize, okay, even though I don't get it, because here's the thing that can take place. Hardships can liberate us from our loyalty to the world. And I say that that way. Hardships can liberate us from our loyalty to this world. 
We perceive, think, and believe that certain things should be a certain way in this world, even though we know there's some bad stuff going down. But hardships help us to realize, this is not home. This place isn't going to fix itself. You can't take away one weapon and assume people won't kill somebody. Oh, let's just take away the weapons. Oh, that makes sense. They'll just use another one. You know, a rock, a car, what other mean, a fertilizer to blow up a building. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 we have to realize there's just things in this world. I just don't, I, this is not my home. I'm hoping, praying to see the hand of God in a way that brings some of this to a decrease. But I also know this, the world, it's, my belief about God is going to be tested by my experiences in this world. And I will not give up what I know for what I do not know. I do not know why this takes place that way. But I do know there's a creator of the universe and I know Jesus died for my sins. I will not give up that because I'm confused or concerned or disturbed by some of this. So they saw his work. We also experience his grace, his love, his forgiveness. Don't harden your hearts. Don't put him to the test. It finishes up there where God you know, was saying that he, you know, he's been patient. I tolerated it. And, and you know, that they, they would not turn. They just chose that route. Verse 11 is not God kind of flaring his nostrils and getting all huffy or whatever. It's just taking, I think it, the term would be anthropomorphic. Uh, expression, putting human um, attributes, if you would, to God so that we can understand how God would do things. It's not saying that he's you know, doing this with his hand or broadcasting the stars in a physical sense. You see what I'm saying? And so here we're being told that in my wrath, I swore they would not enter my rest. It conveys his firmness in correction of those who are defiant and unwilling to be taught. See, they wandered in the wilderness seeing his works, but would not learn his ways. And they, they bowled their neck, so to speak, and just stiffened up. And they went through life the way they thought it should be, and they missed the blessing. That's true for you and me, Christian, if we're not careful. That's why this is really a warning. Saying, listen, don't repeat what they did, because you could. You could experience his works. You could ignore his ways. You can say it's okay and do it your way, and you'll miss the blessing he has for you, really even becoming stiff-necked. And I don't mind saying that because I'm not saying it at you. I'm just saying, hey, look out. There's something up ahead, and if you run into it, it's going to hurt. That's the simplicity to it. I'd like to see. I want to know. I want to learn from Stan Brunskill, who said, you're better off learning from them than doing it to yourself. Smash your finger because I wouldn't hold the hammer the way you told me to. Well, that's okay. I got nine more. Or, hmm, I think I'm going to take some advice. I'm going to learn from that. Let's close out our time with Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. There's actually uh, a portion that we even see uh, this issue or this, this topic of Scripture addressed Begin chapter 3 or the same passage we're reading and, and continuing in chapter 4 about entering his rest. But let's realize that that's, there's also this rest spoken up for you and me, this realization of this principle and this truth of knowing his work and his ways. And as we pick up in verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. 
Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Excuse me, being able to... All right, I got to back up. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I love this portion in consideration of this passage we're looking at because that's how God most often speaks to us is he'll take what we've observed and read and considered, and then in a moment of need, in the time imperfect, he'll bring a verse to mind. He'll bring his word to our realization. And he'll bring it to where we realize, oh man. And I use this one often, but it's so simple, such a clear example. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. That'll come to mind in a situation that you're in where you need to exercise wisdom. Like, okay, how do I deal with that? See, that's his voice speaking to us. But we can harden our heart, but not understand what it says. It just tells you and me right here, his word is not swayed by our will or swayed by our perceived wisdom. You ever decided, well, this will be okay. I can do it this way. This will be a bit different. But you or I am, we're not recognizing the thoughts and the intents of our heart. But the word of God cuts deep and releases, frees you from those entanglements that actually lead you, if we're entangled and tied to those, they lead us into a life of misery. But being cut loose, this word spoken to our heart, when we listen and learn to have this sensitivity and awareness of what the word of God says by the person of the Holy Spirit, bring into understanding this I would lead you to. This is what I would teach you. Because there's no creature There's no creature that's hidden from his sight. But everything is well known by God, naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. As a Christian, we'll give an account for what we've done with what he's given us. It'll begin in priority with people, not so much resources, but people. How have we trained and taught? How have we lived out this love? How have we reflected his grace to those around us? It's not a guilt trip. It's an encouragement to say, hey, I want to make that a priority. I want to make that important. I'd like to have, you know, Greg will come back up. Worship team will come back up right now, and we're going to close out our time. And if you will position yourself over in Hebrews chapter 10, as they come up here, we'll pray. And we'll pray literally through that portion of Scripture. And then uh, we'll join in a song of worship together. So... You've been sitting for a while. Time to stand up, don't you think? Stretch out a little bit. And we stand up together and we'll pray. With your eyes upon Hebrews 10, 23, and an attitude and mindset of prayer, let's acknowledge his presence. God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you're oh so ever patient with us and yet persistent. You don't allow us to wallow in self-pity or clothe ourselves with carnality that we would not be bothered by you, but rather you disturb and stir. You awaken and invite. You draw us close to you, God. And I just pray, Lord, you teach us what it means to know you, to know your works, and to know your ways, God. Thank you that the pressure really isn't on us. 
The promise comes from you. The revelation comes from you. Oh, that we would be men, women of courage, of integrity, of humility and hunger, that we would receive what you show us, that we not become hardened, but rather softened by your presence, that we would hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for you, God, you're the one who promised and you are faithful. May we also be aware of those around us and consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, gathering together for your glory, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as we see the day approaching. Oh, Lord, we would pray, come, Lord Jesus. May what we believe be reflected in what we do. May all that we do bring glory to your name. It's in your name we pray. We sing to you, Jesus. Amen.